the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You, um, if you are a frequent television viewer, I do not count myself amongst those numbers, but for those of you that are, you might have been watching recently the uh, runaway smash hit early on uh, TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven. And uh, it, it's kind of a religious murder mystery. Is there such a thing as that? Um, and I won't take time here at the top of the conversation to go into uh, to mo- too much detail uh, because I want to get into our visit with our next guest, who is, in fact, a former member of the Mormon Church. She has written a number of best-selling books. In fact, she has more than 30 bestsellers to her credit. She also has a Ph.D. in biblical studies. Joins us now to discuss a, a book that is now retitled and re-released called Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And we're pleased to have join us once again Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott, thanks so much for carving some time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Tell me first a, a bit sort of from your, your perspective, why the fascination with this? I mean, I, I, I suppose in the sense, I mean, obviously, uh, Americans, like a, a lot of Westerners, uh, love to get pulled into murder mysteries and uh, whodunit type stories and what have you. We have for, you know, going back to uh, the days of her Sherlock Holmes. This particular TV series, though, has a bit of a twist in that it is kind of against the setting of of Mormonism, um, all of the, the primary protagonists in the, the story uh, or, are Mormon or, or have uh, some involvement with the Mormon church. Why do you think that's attracting so much attention? Well, Under the Banner of Heaven was based on a best-selling book by John Krakauer, and he based his uh, narrative nonfiction on an incident that actually happened in the 1970s in Utah, where an offshoot of the Mormon Church, some, I guess we would call them Mormon extremists, um, had a woman that that kind of married into their clan, and it really was a family clan, and she didn't really toe the line on some things like having multiple wives um, and other things, and they ended up murdering her. And this is, I mean, this is a, a documented case uh, that actually happened. And Krakauer's book detailed that, but when Hulu made a series out of it, they put in it a couple of characters that weren't from real life, but who were, one of them was a faithful Mormon. And I think the thing that made the big difference, Craig, with, with the listeners and the watchers of this, this uh, Hulu series was that they saw what happens to a faithful, you know, true blue Mormon when he begins to see that his past, his, um, 
all of the things that he held most dear about Mormonism actually don't have reality and fact. In mm. other words, um, most of the history of the Mormon Church has been just made up or plastered over or prettied up, but it's actually quite a bloody uh, background. Or at times, as, as we've seen in uh, the history of probably the least, uh, certainly the last 100 plus something years, and that is when certain things come out that tend to be very inconvenient, then the history of the church gets rewritten and washed over and and uh, the, the denial factory uh, kicks into high gear. Beyond, obviously, some aspects, and I think, you know, for, for fairness and clarity's sake for our listeners, there are different branches of Mormonism. There's sort of the more traditional LDS, Utah, Mother Church brand of Mormonism, and then we have a lot of offshoots. I'm thinking of, for example, the, the Warren Jeffs um, uh, offshoot that, that really gets into the notion of multiple wives to a very significant degree and a very, very closed type of society where, on average, and correct me at any point, Dr. Scott, if I'm incorrect here, most LDS church Mormons, well, perhaps a lot of their social life might be amongst other Mormons and within their own family. They, they certainly don't eschew interaction with non-Mormons um, and, in fact, oftentimes are, are very, very active in the community around them. Well, it's kind of a peculiar situation. When I was a, a very faithful Mormon at Brigham Young University, um, at that time, Brigham Young University was was for members of the main group that you just mentioned, and, and everything you said was accurate, by the way. Um, but... Also at BYU when I was there were several people from polygamist compounds in Mexico and in Arizona. Uh, young people that had been sent by their families to Brigham Young University because it was such a high quality of education. So this wasn't something really openly talked about, but, you know, I knew that uh, once you started talking to people about their background and they weren't usually weren't very open about it, but you could find, finally figure out if they were from Mexico and they were from a particular community down there, they were from a polygamous branch of the Mormon church. And I think at last count, Craig, um, maybe 50 or 60 distinct movements have come out of the mainstream Mormon church. Hmm. Groups. Now, aside certainly from the polygamy, which of course tends to still, even in this day and an age, when uh, when almost seemingly anything goes, it still tends to raise eyebrows. And yet, I think there is um, a pretty significant group uh, just amongst the population that probably still positively views the, or still views the church in a, in a positive fashion, in the sense that, as I mentioned, the, the the people of the church tend to be very involved in in civic life and, and community life and, uh, you know, well known for certainly clean living. You know, if you if you say, well, my neighbor, you know how he is. He doesn't smoke, drink or go with girls that do. <laughs> They'll probably say, oh, yeah, he's a Mormon. You know, there's that there's that sense of, of, of a high level of discipline and healthy, clean living lifestyle. And yet. Below the surface of sort of the presentation that all is well, the families get along, divorce never happens, it's all, uh, you know, um, coming, everything's coming up roses, there is a side of Mormonism, and again, now to be distinct, I'm not talking here about the, 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 the cult end of the polygamy side of the extreme end of LDS, but rather sort of within the mainstream church, that there's still a side of Mormonism that is not really what it's cracked up to be. 
You know, there's an inordinate, inordinately large percentage or large uh, factor of Mormon women who are on antidepressants and are and or consider suicide because of the expectations that are put on them to live that kind of lifestyle. And of course, if you believe, as I did, that when I got married, that I was going to have as many children as my body could reasonably bear because there were spirits in heaven waiting to inhabit bodies and they needed Mormon bodies. And so I was willing to do that. I didn't believe I was going to practice polygamy on earth but I did believe I would practice it in heaven when I became a goddess and my husband's other wives were goddesses and he was a god and we would be populating planets. Well, you can imagine that 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 kind of expectation for eternity coupled with the fact that you really do want to put the best face forward uh, for your faith. You want your children to be, you know, dressed nice and you uh, you want to be the, the hostess with the mostess and cook and clean and, you know, participate in church work. And it, it's really overwhelming for women. And I've spoken to many women who um, just suffered so silently not because the church was repressing them, but because of the expectations that the church and they put on them to to um, model future godhood. And it's it's quite a burden to, to carry. Yeah, it would seem to me, I mean, you're, you're describing a model that is very, in other terms, very works-based. And as we know from a biblical perspective, a, a works-based faith uh, never never turns out well. Uh, you know, our, our, our works mm-hmm. are a result of our, uh, our salvation um, or a product of our salvation and not the other way around. And so I would imagine it must be pretty exhausting trying to live up to that standard. And then also finding yourself in a religion that is... Um, pretty close-minded, and by that I mean, and I even say it on this program, hey, if I say something on the air that you think sounds like a lot of hooey, don't take my word for it. Go and check it out. Go talk to your pastor. Dive into the Word and see if it doesn't agree, and if the Word doesn't agree and proves me wrong, then please call me and tell me I'm an idiot and a liar. That kind of questioning or sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, doubting Thomas trying of one's own faith, that's not encouraged within Mormonism at all, is it? Well, not only that, Craig, what you're aiming at and what I'm aiming at is to help our Christian brothers and sisters have compassion for these people that are overwhelmed with having to earn their salvation or in, in Mormon terminology to earn their exaltation because they believe salvation is guaranteed to everybody if you're born on earth but exaltation means where you end up in heaven and you have to earn that you're absolutely right and so you and i both want um, uh, your listeners to come away with the impression that these people that seem so formidable with this great you know this uh, and, and they're trying their hardest to do their best but there's, there are many of them are suffering because this is quite a burden that their, their religious faith puts on them. And, um, and you mentioned that they're being exclusive. I don't think you used that word. Um, 
from the point of view of a Mormon, I was very proud of that. I, I this uh, this close knit group was something I was proud of. And to be honest with you, Craig, I've been a member of the same congregation for fifty years now. Once I left Mormonism, same Christian con- congregation of people, and I love that we stick together too. So, you know, what we see as a disadvantage in, in others, we need to just make sure as, if we're going to turn the searchlight of criticism on a group that we have a um, that when it shines back on us we're not doing the same thing Um, that's why I think people often ask is Mormonism a cult and um, I just wanted to ask you Craig what do do you think about that well you know as as I understand a cult and there's a couple of degrees to which I I would define it first and foremost when it comes down to the the most fundamental rudimentary rudimentary definition of what salvation is uh, i i would suggest Yes, because I do not see within Mormonism the the singular belief that the only way by which man may be may be forgiven forgiven of sin and regenerated and and relationship with God restored is singularly and only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And yet I understand that there's so much of Mormonism that is works based, which then I think would would in a sense qualify it as being a bloodless cult, meaning that it does not singularly turn on Christ's work on the cross, and then when you add things like, yeah, the, the, the sense of being, being a tight-knit community is not always a bad thing, provided that, you know, it, it doesn't become an echo chamber. And what I love about mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity is not only are questions encouraged, I think that it, that, it, mm-hmm. that it really ought to be part of what we do. Hath God said, let's check out and see what the Word has to say. Asking questions seems to be something that, at least from my understanding, is not always encouraged within the Mormon Church. I mean, I would suspect if you went to a- any of the twelve elders and said, "Okay, about these um, about these plates of Moroni," um, and uh, so they came, they were discovered, they were translated, but you don't have them in the church library because God took them back up to heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the one thing that's beautiful about Christianity is that we can demonstrate not only from the eyewitness accounts that we see and the harmony of the God and throughout scripture, but there's also architecture and history that demonstrates that many of the things that we see and hear and read about within God's word is, in fact, verifiable by extra biblical sources. And that's not necessarily the case within Mormonism. So from those two points, I would say, yeah, I would probably put, although maybe not in the same category as a a cult, quote unquote, like a Jonestown, Jim Jones style cult, I would still have to say, and I would... I would even say this to a, a, a Mormon friend that I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of Mormonism does appear to be a cult. You know, I agree completely with you, and I don't know whether, you, uh, when we put this together, there are four characteristics of a pseudo-Christian cult. In other words, a cult that uses the terminology of Christianity, but um, is a, a cult. And one is that it deifies man or mankind, and we talked about that when I told you that I believed I was going to become a goddess and my husband was going to become a god. We've already talked about, and you brought up very aptly, the different view of salvation, or works-based salvation. When you mentioned the uh, the golden plates, 
what did the Book of Mormon intend to do? It intended to make up for the lacks in the Bible. So the third characteristic of a cult is that it ostracizes scripture or replaces it or diminishes it. And the only thing we didn't talk about that's the fourth characteristic of God, and I think this is remarkable, we did this, you and I, not just discussing this ahead of time, is we did not talk about how a God, the Father in, um, in Mormon theology, was a former man who lived on a different planet than this and became a God. Yeah. So the fourth characteristic of a cult, we, we actually just been talking about it. We've just been talking about what we know about Mormonism. We've already identified three of the four characteristics of a cult. And, you know, I find it fascinating because when we talk about man's sin nature, I mean, certainly the notion of wanting to to um, uh, transplant or supersede God's authority, I mean, that was hinted mm-hmm. at even within uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and said, well, mm-hmm. hath God said? And, and the notion of man wanting to take on uh, God-like characteristics. I have to tell you, uh, as a believer of many years now, I find even the notion exhausting. I would have no int- God says, I am the only Lord thy God, and you will have no other gods before me. And I don't even want to think about the notion of being competitive, uh, let alone being on the same par. I am quite content with God being God. And, and I think that notion of of becoming a deity or having, I mean, I, I may have traits in terms of, of being created in the image and likeness of God, but I am not God. And when we start to do that, we find ourselves, quite frankly, taking on the characteristics of another very prominent character in Scripture, and that is Satan himself, who wished mm-hmm. to be God. That's right. And therefore, you look at that from a purely scriptural standpoint and say, you know, if Mormons insist that, you know, we, we all believe in the same God, it's just a little bit of a different approach. We've got a little bit more current revelation, you know, that it didn't end with the, the final pages being written of the the uh, the New Testament somewhere in the Middle East uh, 2,000 or 1,500 years ago, whatever the date might be. But instead, it was just, you know, less than 150, 200 years old written here and just right over here in Utah. Boy, you got to look at that and say, Say there seems to be something that's not quite computing. With me today is Dr. Latane Scott. She has a newly released and, and retitled a book called Under the Banner of the Mormon Cold. And she draws from her own life experiences to help readers understand the current day fascination with Mormonism, particularly as it's capturing some attention um, with the current television series Under the Banner of Heaven, as well as helping us understand not only what Mormon teaches, how how it differs from traditional mainline fundamental five pillars of the faith style of Christianity and then ultimately and perhaps most importantly how we can reach our Mormon friends for Christ. We take a time out. We'll come back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm getting the sense that we should have booked an hour with our guest uh, in this segment of the program because there's so much to unpack here. But that'll maybe give you a good reason to go out and uh, order a copy of her newly released and retitled book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, where she draws from her own life experiences and offers insights to readers in terms of not just having a better understanding of some of the history of Mormonism, what it teaches, how it differs from mainline evangelical Christianity, but then, and of course, most importantly, uh, how we're able to share our faith and encouragement with 
our Mormon friends. And and toward that end, let, let's talk about that. We've kind of talked about some of the the challenges that that Mormons face in terms of you know the the the, the sort of the requirement of of lifestyle and good works for um, salvation. And and I would suspect then to some degree, uh, Mormons at some point in their their life experience must get a little bit tired and feel tremendously unfulfilled that they're working so hard and granted they've got something to look forward to but you know one of the joys uh, dr scott for me is that yes i've got heaven to look forward to but i also get lots of benefits down here and the relationship with god and the satisfaction of being able to, to have that communion with him is is absolutely uh, without without equal and and yet i would imagine for a mormon they don't share that experience and i wonder if that's a is that potentially a starting point when you wish to share your faith with a mormon you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because when people ask me when Mormon missionaries come to their door, what should they do? You know, what should they know? Is there a magic bullet scripture you can quote to them and they'll go away scratching their heads and, you know, starting to wonder? And it's really much simpler than that, Craig. I tell people that when someone comes to your door and tells you that they have the Mormon gospel, um, I suggest that you not invite them in unless you're really, really prepared. And I believe your home is a sacred place not to bring someone in error into. But here's what I tell people to do. You can open the door and say, you know... Uh, I appreciate your coming, but you know what? I am so satisfied in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have such a happy relationship with my uh, church family, and even though I have circumstances in my life that are hard, I have eternal joy and eternal hope, and I'm content with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you why that would be so effective. When I was a Mormon, I believed that Christians were secretly unhappy and they needed Mormonism to be happy. And that they were all, and of course that was always solidified when people slammed the doors in the faces of Mormon missionaries, you know. Here are these sour-faced people that, you know, say, I don't want to hear you, and they shut the door. If I think if I had, when I was a Mormon, heard Christians saying, my life with, with the Lord Jesus Christ is so satisfying that I don't need what you're offering me. I tell you what, these 18, 19-year-old boys that are homesick, they're away from their homes, they're stuck with each other, you know, day and night, literally. If they heard that from, let's say, every other door that they knocked on in a neighborhood of a Christian giving them a big smile and saying, you know what? I, don't, I just don't need that. I, I have so much joy in, in my life, so much satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not anything you could give me that I don't already have. Those young men would go back and start thinking, what do they know that we don't know? Mm. Let me ask you this. From, from a Mormon perspective, um, when, when I think of God, certainly I, I acknowledge and recognize that he is holy and righteous and that um, he's a jealous God. 
He wants no other gods before him, that he expects me to live up to a certain standard. The same token, that same God recognizes that in my fallen sin nature, we've proven to be wholly incapable of that, and therefore the reason why he sent his son to pay the price on my behalf. But I I don't see God as someone that is standing in heaven with a bat ready to bash me over the head at the first wrong move. Rather, I see a God that, yes, is holy and righteous, but is also loving, long-suffering, tender, compassionate, caring, always present, um, always responding, even though the answer sometimes to prayer may be no, but yet God is, is engaging and is there. Is that kind of perspective shared by Mormons, or is he the, the big bo- boogeyman up in the sky ready to bop you over the head? Honestly, I never had that impression, um, Craig. In fact, kind of to the opposite since I believed that God the Father was a former man who lived on another planet and that his wife or wives Heavenly Mother had gone through the same kind of process I had gone through in an earthly life I believed that they would be more sympathetic to my struggles because they had been through them themselves mm. and of course that completely hijacks and shanghai's the role of jesus christ of as someone who came to earth to share in our in our, in our uh, sufferings and you know he suffered in all points just as we are and if, if you don't mind me inserting this right now because the those four characteristics i told you uh, about a cult are so significant in evaluating any group like Mormonism. I would love to bless your listeners with a free ebook on the characteristics of a cult. All they have to do is go to lacane.com forward slash cults and I'll send them a free ebook that gives the characteristics of, of a cult. And you can take those and look at any group around you to see if they, uh, if they follow these four characteristics. And to come back to what you're saying, this view of a formerly human God, the Father, diminishes him. See, the comfort I have now, Craig, in the true and living God of, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the Bible is that he doesn't ever change. Mormons believe God is eternally progressing. That, that he's going to be wiser tomorrow than he was today. And the problem with that, of course, is that he's not as wise as he will, uh, he wasn't as wise yesterday as he is today. Mm. That once you realize that, it, it makes him a lesser God because he's just one of us. Yeah, and I'm so delighted that the God I serve is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and is all-knowing. And I don't have to worry about God learning something new tomorrow. He knows it all, and I can rely upon that in my own life. And, you know, at the end, and I think this is a good point to conclude our conversation on, Dr. Scott, Mormonism, like like many of the cults, if you, if you scrutinize it close enough, you begin to realize that there are attributes that are... Are Christianity like that are Bible ish, but in the end are in fact a cheap imitation of the real deal. Now, how can you gain a better understanding in knowing the difference? Well, uh, Dr. Scott, very gracious in offering a free ebook called What is a Cult? And all you need to do to get your own copy is to go to Latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll spell that for you. It's L-A-T-A-Y-N-E, Latane.com 
forward slash cults, and you can get your own free copy of the ebook What is a Cult? Dr. Scott, we're going to have to have you back on when we've got more time to spend together because there's so much on this subject matter that I believe is worthwhile talking about and so many of the lessons that are certainly specific to Mormonism, but in the broader sense can be applied across the board for any of us, no matter who you might run into as you share your faith with others, uh, gaining a better understanding of, um, of who Christ is, of course, and your own relationship with God is the first key to understanding more about the cults and sharing your faith. Information again on the web at Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com. And for your free ebook called What is a Cult? Simply go to latane.com forward slash cults. Dr. Latane Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us. The book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you have ever traveled through many parts of the Middle East, that the familiar sound five times a day of the Islamic call to prayer. And while it brings up, conjures up ideas, I think, of fascination at certain levels for many Westerns, also brings up concerns, thoughts, questions about the relationship between the Middle East, Islam specifically, and those of us in the West Christians and Jews, yet more specifically. Why was the United States attacked and almost 3,000 people forced to lose their lives on that fateful day in September of 2001? Was it our politics, our pluralism, our foreign policy? Was it our friends and our associations? Was it our military? Was it our freedom? Was it our religious beliefs? Drilling down through many of these questions, and certainly difficult ones to be sure, our next guest is a conversation we've been looking forward to, and we are delighted to have the speaker of Leading the Way, Dr. Michael Youssef, and he joins us now by phone. And Dr. Youssef, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Pleasure, Craig. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Born in Egypt, raised in Lebanon, you have a heart for the people of the Middle East, uh, and a heart too, I think, um, uh, Dr. Youssef, to help Americans, uh, and, and in specific American Christians, understand more about what really turns out to be two very divergent worldviews. Exactly. Uh, I think part of the problem uh, that and the confusion and the fog that has been really thrown at us, and I'm talking uh, at us as a society, as a culture, and as a church, is that our desire as Christians to love everyone, to love the Muslim people, and then the understanding, comprehending, and exposing the truth about the system in which the Muslim people themselves are trapped. To make that distinction is tough, it's hard. And so people end up going on one side or the other. You got a bunch of, of, of professing Christians, I don't know if they're Christians, but they're professing Christians, who say for the sake of loving Muslims, we love Islam itself, even though it is a contrary, contradictory uh, religion to the very core of the Christian faith. In fact, you have this movement now, it's called Chrislam, where um, churches have an Islamic services in, in their midst which is really a travesty 
but and then you got on the other extreme, of course, those who lump the Muslims and Islam together, and they refuse to do the skull work of separating the two. And so we got a dilemma: How do we take the Apostle Paul's exhortation to speak the truth in love, and at the same time uh, not to muddy the waters? And so that's what I intended, you know, what I've been trying to do, actually, for uh, 40 years of ministry uh, around the world, and and, uh, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, As you probably know, I've been broadcasting in a dual-language program in all of the Arab world for 18 years now on radio, uh, in every every town and every city in in, in the entire Arabic world. And now we have a television station 24-7 dedicated dedicated to taking the gospel of Jesus Christ into 160 million homes in the Arab world. Now, I wouldn't go to all this trouble if I did not love the Muslim people. Uh, But at the same time, uh, one needs to be truthful and understand that Islam as a system is a world-dominating desired uh, system. That's, That's how they started. And the first, literally... The first, uh, or the second successor of the Prophet Muhammad, the uh, Prophet of Islam, uh, took armies and invaded Christian lands. He took the sword and went over to Lebanon and Palestine. All these were Christian lands. Eighty-five percent, ninety percent of the populations uh, of all of that region were Christians. Uh, same thing in North Africa and Egypt. They were all eighty-five to ninety percent Christians. And they invaded those lands and gave people basically three options. You convert to Islam, uh, pay the, uh, or pay the, the fine uh, if you're a Christian, or face the sword. And that's how they conquered most of these Christian lands. And now they're saying, look, that this modern-day jihad is not like that. We're doing it by increasing population in Europe, and we're doing it by uh, using our petrodollars, and consequently, and was an article in the, in the Daily Telegraph in, in London recently talking about the incredible insti- financial institutions in, in England that are totally owned uh, by Muslims. Uh, the Barclays Bank and uh, Harrods and well, the list goes on and on and on. And so they said, look, with the money and increase in population, we're going to do jihad differently from what our ancestors did it. And so that is something that the Christian public need to understand. That's the ideology. That's the desire. I'm not saying all of them, but that's the militant mindset, the Wahhabis. Um, I was chuckling uh, when this open mic uh, with uh, the president of Russia and, and the gaff of our president, and I often wonder, what did he say to the king of Saudi Arabia when he bowed down to him? Um, back when nobody was was watching, and there's no hot mic, uh, so this this is this is this is the ideology, and we've got to understand that. And we say, fine. So, how we as Christians uh, are to respond? And of course, the part of the response. Go ahead. And of course, part of that response, at least what we've seen so far, uh, is based, I think, or rooted largely, uh, Dr. Youssef, in areas of, of, of well-meaning, of concern, of a desire to share the love of Jesus Christ, a desire in sort of the Western way of thinking, particularly from an American viewpoint, where we're here in a pluralistic society, we kind of take the, the live and let live approach. Uh, for the best part of the history of our nation, we have seen Jews and Christians and Protestants and Catholics all 
manage to get along and live side by side peacefully and never really run into any kind of conflicts. And yet it is this large degree of Western ignorance on the topic, ignorance of sort of the, the, the Western mindset, not understanding the Eastern mind, the Eastern teachings as it relates to Islam and what the real intentions are. We're going to dig down to some of these questions today on the program and hopefully get some answers for you as well. Dr. Michael Youssef, our special guest, getting some understanding as to what is taught by uh, Islam. What is the radical Islamic agenda today or more specifically how America and the West has become blindsided? Blindsided by the Radical Islamic Conquest, a new book by Dr. Youssef. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the program. Amazing the number of opinions as to why the attacks on the United States on 9-11. Is it our politics, our pluralism, our foreign policy, our friends and associations, our military? Is it our belief system? Dr. Michael Yosef, our very special guest tonight, focusing on his brand new book, Blindsided, The Radical Islamic Conquest. Is it a, a sense of well-meaning, Dr. Yosef, when you've heard down through the years some of these excuses? I remember back even in the days immediately following 9-11, President Bush getting up and talking about how this peaceful religion had been hijacked by a handful of radical Muslims. Is that, again, kind of the attempt to, to portray or to project our, our, our Western ideology, our Western way of thinking, our pluralism on another religion and not really fully understanding what we're talking about here? Sure. Bush was wrong about that, and he was wrong about bringing democracy to the Muslim world because Islam and democracy just cannot mix uh, democracy by its nature is uh, West, it's biblical and Western. It came out of the uh, Protestant Reformation where the right of the individual and the freedom of the individual is paramount. While in Islam, it's a theocratic society that Allah has to, Allah is the one who rules through his caliphate and therefore uh, man has no rights or freedoms. So uh, trying to impose democracy was just a, a, a fallacy that it did not work just like all the other stuff uh, that uh, when it comes through Western grid, it doesn't work. And that's why, uh, you know, you can say, well, it's because of Israel. But I promise you, if Israel does not exist, uh, we would have the same problem. Um, and and, and look, look what is, is happening in Europe. I mean, I read their material. I read their own material. Uh, their own uh, published material where they had big conferences about how we're going to take over Europe. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with Israel. It has everything to do with the fact that they are commanded in the Quran. That's how I wish people would read the Quran. Uh, I think it's great for Christians to read it. They should read it. Uh, they're commanded to basically take on uh, the world. And they said, whatever you, the bottom of your feet touches, it immediately become a Muslim land. Now, you can uh, basically try to work out all sorts of deals while you're in the weak side until you become stronger, then you, you change the, the, the deal. Uh, but nonetheless, that is their command. We're commanded by our Lord to take the gospel to the ends of the earth uh, through love and peace. Uh, they are commanded to take the world. Uh, by all means possible. Let's get some calls here. We're going to run into uh, Hayward first up and say good afternoon to Steve. Steve, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Michael Youssef. Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you both for, for having me. My, my question really is, why is America so blindsided when we have throughout 
history allowed other faiths and religions to come into America, including Buddhists and Mormons and the like, and, and, and allow them to flourish here in America with their religions, um, put up their churches, uh, make a place, you know, be kind and considerate and, and uh, you know, in general, allow them to be here, and then we, we, we act like we don't know what's going on when these things happen to us in regards to Islam as if, as if we don't understand the people and the different faiths that we're allowing in America. Any comments on that? Yes, uh, I mean, we've got to understand that uh, uh, a Buddhist is not necessarily their ideology, is not to conquer the world, um, and uh, Baha'is and the rest of it, uh, and therefore there was no problem. Um, but once you bring in uh, people who base their basic ideology is to come in and slowly but surely to convert the world because that is doing Allah, their God, a favor and therefore we have to expect that. Now we're blindsided because we still don't understand that. We still um, uh, pretend that this is just a religion like all other religions without a, uh, a conquering ideology. That's the sad part. Next up for Dr. Michael Youssef, here is Mark in San Jose. Mark, come on in with your comment or question. You're on KFAX. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Fred. You know, uh, the thing is, is uh, all the Muslims I've met, you know, and I go off witnessing on college campuses, they all seem to be nice people, and uh, I don't think anything, you know, any of them that I've met, you know, would be willing to carry out violence. But the problem is, of course, is if you've read the Koran, as I have and we all have, and the Hadith, there's all sorts of stuff, uh, you know, in there, like... Uh, there's a story about how they killed a uh, hundred Jews while their wives and kids were crying and weeping and they decapitated them. And it's spoken of as a positive thing where you're actually rewarded for killing the so-called infidels. But, you know, the thing is, is this. Uh, I, uh, I do believe 9-11 could not have been prevented because it was the sixth trumpet. There's a parallelism to the day that God told Elijah the prophet to anoint Yahoo king over Israel on the biblical sixth trumpet. And although it does take a little while to explain, it's definitely in the Bible. It's, it's what Jesus called the abomination of desolation. And Daniel did too. It's stated as uh, occurring in 1290 days in Daniel, but 1263 and a half in Revelation. Let me let me jump in real quick, Mark, because I appreciate your call. I don't want to get too far afield into eschatology, get us off the topic. But let me get Doctor Yusef to to address the the core point that you bring up. Why is there this sense, Doctor Yusef, that there's there's two very different Islams out there? For example, a lot of us that live here in the United States, we know Muslims, we work with them, we go to school with them. They're neighbors of ours. They seem to be peaceful people, and then we see this stark contrast of the behavior of Islam in the Middle East or the events that occurred on 9-11. Why such two radically different pictures that we have of Islam? Sure. Well, because it is, it is uh, they both are true. <laughs> uh, I, the first 18 years of my life, I lived in the Middle East. I grew up in the Middle East. Some of my best friends were Muslims. I had Muslims stayed in my house. I stayed at their house. And uh, this uh, modern radicalization, which is the brand of Islam that says we'll go back to orthodoxy, go back to the time of the Prophet. Uh, it's started by Ibn Wahhab, which you hear it now as the Wahhabi movement, and uh, in Saudi Arabia, and it's it's that radical teaching of Islam of total annihilation of the infidels, which was not the case among many. Uh, the Sufis and many other Muslims and so many of my friends and, 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 and I still have friends uh, do, do not espouse that 
But that uh, return to 7th century Islam uh, began to be pushed around the world by the Saudis, where they were pouring in billions of dollars into these madrasas. And so now we end up with a brand of Islam that dominates. Now, to be sure, there are westernized, there are moderate, there was a so-called moderate, but they're really uh, are westernized Muslims who uh, embarrassed about this, who would wish that it, uh, and they would interpret it different. They would say, for example, this belongs to the 7th century, it does not belong to today, and that it was necessary then for the establishment of Islamic religion, it is not now. Lots of scholars are saying that now. now but they're very small in number, and they really are... Um, uh, 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 many of them are really afraid even to speak too too loud uh, because it it is totally controlled vast majority of the Wahhabis all around the globe they've just taken over Egypt a country that for 60 years has been uh, semi-secular in its uh, outlook uh, same with Tunisia same with Libya I mean it's a, it, it's just seemed to be sweeping the world and uh, of course we just saw an example of it in in France recently uh, where we we know the anti-Semitism has been rising all over Europe but then you get that the shooting of the rabbi and his two kids it's just that is the example of how that type of Islam, the Wahhabi Islam, has been now becoming the majority Islam. As we have seen governments fall in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, uh, there was much talk about the Arab Spring. Is the Arab Spring turning into the Islamic winter? We'll take a look at that question next. Our conversation continues with Dr. Michael Youssef. The program, by the way, leading the way, heard weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. More of the conversation as our visit today with Dr. Michael Youssef continues from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.